Blog Talk Radio. your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and a special welcome to the callers and chatters to the show tonight. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Tonight's show is a conversation with Pamela Bailey about her big family search project. Pamela Bailey is a nationally published author, a singer, songwriter, and a self-described Carolina daughter. She is descended from enslaved people from the PD region of South Carolina. Pamela earned her MFA degree in nonfiction creative writing from Queens University of Charlotte, North Carolina, and her undergraduate degree in business marketing from South Carolina State University in Orangeburg, South Carolina. Well, her current project has afforded her an opportunity to collaborate with scholars in the U.S. and internationally on the subject of forced migration of African-born, excuse me, American-born enslaved people and the lasting effects of forced family separations on their descendants. So let me give just a warm welcome to Pamela Bailey to Ancestors Footprints. Welcome, Pamela. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on the show tonight. I'm excited to have you on the show. So let's start off so that everyone understands what is the Big Family Search Project. The Big Family Search is an idea that I conceived because I wanted to reunite several branches of my family um, that have been separated for generations because of forced migration of American-born, my American-born ancestors. And so I was blessed with growing up in a very close-knit community in a city called Mullen, South Carolina, in the PD region of South Carolina. And so while I grew up there, my parents, you know, taught us through the example of their relationships with their families that family is important. So even as a child, I recognized, you know, the closeness. And so when my family members um, in my extended family would come to visit because some of them had relocated to places like New York and D.C. and Maryland, they would come home often. 
And the love between them, it just never seemed to diminish or, or be affected by time or the distance between them. And so I didn't know what had driven them to have such a strong desire to stay connected. So I realized as an adult that it hasn't always been that way for my family. I knew that I had a large extended family, uh, but in reality, I have an enormous family um, that has been scattered literally from coast to coast because of forced migration that comes from the domestic slave trade here in America. So for some reason um, today, we still tend to think that domestic slavery in the U.S. was so long ago, and in actuality, it wasn't. And so my parents' generation was keenly aware of their history, and because it was not that far away or they weren't removed that, from it, um, some, of their, some of their grandparents and almost all of my parents' great-grandparents were born in slavery. So when I started learning about the subject of forced migration and how it affected millions um, of African-American people before the end of the Civil War, including my own family, I thought creating this awareness and doing all that I could to restore my family was just necessary. Well, I certainly can understand that because so many of us probably share the exact same type of family history as you do. And staying connected, as you said, is something that we all want, we all desire. But before we really get into your project, I want you to tell us about the photos that are rotating across the screen as you speak. Who, who are these people? Okay, um, sure. Um, of course, this is my uh, biological family, and these are people that I am uh, directly descended from. So on one of the pictures, you're going to actually see my grandfather and grandmother. And again, they're a prime example uh, of how close we are um, to that period of antebellum slavery in the U.S., because my grandmother's father was born into slavery, as was her grandmother. And I'm sorry, her mother, and the same was for my grandfather. His father also was born before the end of the Civil War. So my grandparents' parents were born into slavery. But uh, Nathan James Sr. and Henrietta DeWitt James, and my family affectionately uh, called them Et and Dutta. And um, so I, you know, write about them. I've even written music about them because they are connected to uh, quite a bit of history in the state of South Carolina, some recorded and some not recorded. Um, there's a woman that you'll see in those pictures who is my great-great-grandmother, Laura Atkinson Campbell Singletary. And Laura's story is that uh, she was enslaved in Marion County, South Carolina. Now, before the Civil War, um, every uh, area in South Carolina between what is now Dillon County, South Carolina, and Florence, South Carolina, was all one big county, which was Marion County, South Carolina. And um, Laura was enslaved on a farm in a place that is now known as Floydale, South Carolina. And uh, that's, of course, where she met my grandfather, um, who was Amos Bernie Campbell Sr. Um, Laura and Bernie were born in the 1830s. And uh, so she spent, you know, her formative years enslaved on that farm. So when a cousin, uh, Ladrine Campbell Newman, sent me a picture of her about two years ago, I was blown away. 
And what really, you know, just shocked me was how much I looked like Laura Atkinson, Campbell Singletary. So we have the same face shape, the same nose and lips and forehead. And so um, she, again, was one of those catalysts, just seeing this picture that really gave me the desire to, um, you know, to get to know more about my family and to reunite my family. Um, And then there's a cabin that you're going to see. Um, That cabin is still located on a property in Mars Bluff, South Carolina. Um, There is uh, an ancestral relative by the name of Irvin James who was born around 1815, and he had been um, enslaved in Mars Bluff, South Carolina. But even in slavery, he desired to be someone who owned his own land and felt that that would happen for him someday. And so uh, during Reconstruction, around uh, 1870, when he was a free man, he and several of his sons and a son-in-law actually bought 105 acres of land. And his intent was to provide all of his family with a homestead. And that settlement was also called Jamestown. And interestingly enough, um, family members who had been separated by forced migration began to travel back from across the state to this homestead. And at some point, nearly 300 people were living in Jamestown. Um, Some family members a little bit later added another 105 acres to the 105 that Irvin James had purchased previously. And what's amazing about this is that there is a steward in South Carolina by the name of Terry James who is a descendant, and he, along with many others, have kept that land in family trust. And so we are one of the few families in the the U.S. who purchased this land during Reconstruction, and the family still owns the land. Wow, what amazing story. Well, you know what, I looked at that picture, the one that you said is of your great-great-grandmother, Laura Mm -hmm. Atkinson Campbell Singletary, and you definitely resemble her. Isn't it amazing? And I tell you, it just makes me feel so proud. It makes me feel incredibly proud. Um, Because, again, one of the things I know about enslaved people who it took an immense amount of will to survive the circumstances. And she uh, had actually also been um, forcibly migrated. Her death certificate that I was able to find shows that she was born in Raleigh, North Carolina. And so she was uh, forcibly migrated to South Carolina, and uh, she and her husband, Amos, uh, left um, that plantation, moved to a town called Nichols, South Carolina, and um, that was my family's walk across the Campbell's Bridge to Freedom. And uh, so I'm immensely proud of her, um, and just seeing the picture just inspires me. Now, you mentioned the how close your family members are. Did any stories of your family just continue to be told over and over again, or are you finding this information out as you go through your your family search journey? Well, it's a combination of those things. So let me just say, 
um, I learned a lot about my family from my parents and my mother, um, Eunice James Campbell, and my father, Lawrence Campbell. They taught us about our history, and they told us these stories in very different ways. Um, so, for instance, uh, my father um, was an incredibly intelligent man, and while he wasn't formally educated, he knew a lot about the family history, history in general, um, you know, politics, just a, about a lot of things. So he was also one of those dads who didn't like for us to watch television. So um, he would sit down to occupy us uh, with our time, and he would just tell us stories about the family. So interestingly, a lot of the things that he shared with me um, about having Native American blood, about our connection to Mary McLeod Bethune, um, you know, just lots of different things about my family, they've actually been borne out by my research. So his um, use of storytelling, it, it was his way of sort of inculcating our history to us. Now, my mother, on the other hand, um, used music. So it's it's interesting that I can remember my mother singing to me, like my, my formative years. My earliest memory of her is her singing to me as opposed to speaking to me. So music was her way of telling us about her family's history and just connect, connecting us to that history. So I don't even know if that um, her using music was even intentional. But it absolutely served that purpose. And uh, so, again, I, most of what I learned, actually, about just the family history was through family stories. But then, of course, as I began this search and uh, I've connected with other family members, uh, they've certainly added to that history. So, you know, your bio, you talked about your, your family members and how they piqued your interest uh, in family history through music and through stories. But what else did you gain from their stories and what really stimulated your interest in, in history and genealogy? Well, um, just knowing my family story, gave me a tremendous sense of pride about who I was um, as a South Carolinian, who I was as an African-American woman, because most of the history um, about my family and people that looked like me was nowhere to be found in any books. Um, and so it was important to me that that oral history, um, t to learn from that oral history. And as I've said, a lot of that um, uh, history has sort of borne itself out. Um, and so, uh, again, it was just um, it was just one of those things that I'm most grateful for that they have shared those things, had shared those things that have been passed down for generations, and it kept me interested in the history uh, because you know going through school in my formal education, like I said, there was just no interest, but knowing about accomplishments. Um, that African Americans had made, um, and even you know, with buildings uh, in South Carolina, some of the you know the courthouses and um, you know federal, I mean, uh, statewide buildings were built, literally built by the hands of enslaved people. So just having that information piqued my interest. But then finding out about some of the things that my own family had accomplished, it was the thing that really um, piqued my interest to make me want to know more about history. Well, when you talk about, and you've said the words, you've used the words forced migration uh, multiple times. So mm -hmm. let's talk about 
forced migration from your perspective? Give us some facts. What have you actually uncovered in your research about forced migration and how did it affect your family personally? Okay. Well, what I can say to you is that practically every uh, person of African descent living in this country uh, between 1810 and, um, let's say, 1865, every family was pretty much affected by it. So what we do know is that um, from the Upper South, states that were considered the Upper South, um, when um, their land was depleted because um, they did not rotate crops, um, they could not really grow and, you know, make a lot of money from the, the land that they had invested in. So what they did, um, they realized at some point after um, the transatlantic slave uh, trade had ended, you know, that their value uh, really was not in the land, but it was in the enslaved people. So by selling slaves to the lower south, which at that time was initially South Carolina and Georgia, they could make a lot of money. And then as the country grew westerly, uh, so you're now talking about Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and then southerly to Florida, um, it just became a, a booming business. So we're talking about from the upper south nearly a million people that were forcibly migrated, which means that they were sold or families that were hoping to um, expand or grow their uh, their riches, they, and you know, just to increase what they already had, they would take their slaves along with them. Um, and sometimes if a daughter was married, the slaveholder would give her a portion of the slaves as a dowry. So he mm-hmm. broke up the African-American families. Um, and, you know, so some of them went to different places um, in the country never to see each other again. And then there's something that's called local forced migration. So for a long time, researchers didn't really study um, forced local migration because they didn't really feel as if it was as damaging to families as being taken from one state to another state. Um, But new research, probably within the last decade, has proven that that certainly is not the case. Because for enslaved people, who had, you know, very limited, um, you know, freedom or the ability to move off of a plantation, a 50-mile move in the same state, well, you might as well have moved 500 miles. And so I'm finding in my own family where I'm trying to figure out where, you know, I know that this person is descended from this person, but why can't I find them? And then I Mm -hmm. find out that perhaps they were 30 miles away on another farm. So even within families that were in that Marion County from one end of the county to the other end of the county, those families may have never reunited. And as for my great-grandmother, Laura, that you see in the picture, I have no evidence, I've been able to find no evidence whatsoever that she was ever able to see her parents or her siblings again. So they may have remained in the North Carolina area, or they could have been sent to various places within the Carolinas or beyond. So that forced migration, um, which basically means that people were uh, relocated to places without consent against their will, and they Mm -hmm. were never reunited with their families. 
And unfortunately, you're saying relocated without their consent. That is what enslavement meant, that you would be relocated without your consent. That's very true. And um, one of the things that I find, uh, I found as I'm actually doing research, scholarly research, is that, you know, we know just a little bit about how that has happened, but it happened in so many different ways. So it wasn't just um, always someone being sold on the auction block. And again, as I mentioned before, if a daughter was married, that could have been part of her dowry. If a slaveholder had a debt, um, he could exchange a slave uh, to clear his or her debt. Um, and, again, it was just so many ways that the families were separated. Um, and they, again, from South Carolina, my family is all over the U.S. Like I, I like to say, from sea to shining sea is where we are. Yes, and again, with that whole forced migration, you will find people saying, especially when they start looking at their DNA, they're mm -hmm. finding connections like from sea to shining sea <laughs> all yeah, over really. the place, mm -hmm. all over the place. So tell us about your your reconnection process and your research. Where is it going? What are you doing? And what's your methodology? Okay. So this has been um, the best part <laughs> for me, um, actually being able to connect to people. And, and sometimes it's very random. Um, and it's just been amazing. Um, this family, this newfound family that I have be begun to meet, are very open and receptive um, to knowing about um, our shared ancestry. So here are a few of the things that I do. Now, I do have to tell you that I have actually been researching my family's history for about a decade. And so a lot of the work I had put in initially, so I've been, you know, collecting documents and then using, you know, online searches, um, it's very important. Uh, one of the things um, I will say about some of the companies that offer, um, you know, this sort of online search, and I started doing a lot of mine at the library, it absolutely sort of democratizes the process. So you don't really have to, um, you know, be a member of some of these, um, you know, some of these programs, although I am because I'm doing uh, quite a bit of deep research. But most public libraries offer practically all of the online searches to find family. Um, and what I used a lot of was information that had been given to me either through my father and I had um, – uh, an aunt, Lucy May, she was a great aunt. She was my father's auntie um, who lived to be about 97 years old. And she passed away in 2009. But before that happened, I had a phone call with her. And um, she said to me, you know, if you are really interested in this, um, I need you to get a pencil and um, a piece of paper. And then she began to give me names, names of family members, uh, names that she knew would be misspelled um, on census records, and she wanted me to have the correct information. She literally knew where bodies were buried. And so I used that information um, in, in um, conjunction with online searches in various databases, uh, government databases, looking for, you know, birth certificates, death certificates, um, slave uh, registries, uh, sh uh, ship manifests. So, um, but also 
um, in using some of these databases, I have found other people who were looking for the same people. And that's my first clue, you know, if I am actually connected to someone. And then in 2017, I took a DNA test, and that was mind-blowing because, um, you know, I, again, I knew that I had a very large family. I expected to find the overwhelming majority of my family in South Carolina. I honestly wasn't prepared to find so much of my family across the country. But when I took this DNA test, um, probably within the first few weeks, um, because I left my information open because I wanted to connect with people, but within just a few weeks, I had about 350 people that were connected to me. And out of those 350 people, I knew one person. So within, I'd say, another six months, that number had doubled, and I only knew about five of those people. So then I started reaching out to people when I could find their email addresses. And um, sometimes I would ask if we could have a phone call. Um, there were times that they gave me permission to connect with them on Facebook and, you know, other kinds of social media. And I will tell you, again, that everyone that I've actually been able to make a personal connection with, they actually feel like family. Um, it's just the most amazing thing. And so I'm going to be starting soon um, actually meeting some of these people face-to-face. I love it. I mean, I, there's a comment, what a treasure trove of information from the, your auntie. <laughs> I mean, yes. the person who could tell you to get a pencil and paper and sit down. I'm getting ready to give you some really good information. Right. So many people don't even think to go to the source. They're there. Right. Get to the person that's still alive mm-hmm. that can give you the information to kind of help you with that roadmap. Uh, although you said you had online, you, you, you started with something, and someone right. gave you that information, which I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that tonight. But the other was the DNA. And the 350 people that actually connected with you, because one of the things that we have with DNA is that we do have the tools there for people to make the connections, but they're not making the connections. Right. And so for 350 people to connect with you, even though you only knew one (laughs) or Mm -hmm. a few, Mm -hmm. at least that was a beginning for you. To it get was. this family search off the ground. It was. And some of those people had already created family trees. So even if I didn't know who they were specifically, if they left their trees open and I was able to go into those trees, I started seeing family names. So I found Rames or Thames or James, um, Campbell. I found Vereen. I found Gerald. I found, you know, all of the family names that I knew were my family. And again, because my parents told me about their family members. You know, I knew these names. They were familiar to me. And Mm -hmm. um, so it is important, like you said, and and even now with my older relatives, I still ask questions all the time because it's important for us to capture their narratives in their voice because their stories were not told. Yes, yes. I agree with you. Definitely capture their narratives. Uh, and capture their narrative sometimes means that you might want to record it too. 
you oh, know, yeah. you're hearing it, but recording it and, and uh, even preparing a document of which you can say, this is who gave me this information, mm-hmm. which is which is wonderful as part of your, your uh, big family tree. Well, we're going to take a quick break and then come back and continue to talk about all of those family members you're connecting to. So just a quick break, okay? Okay. Ancestors Footprints Blog Talk Radio. Well, I just have two announcements for you tonight. Registration is now open for the Midwest African American Genealogy Institute, the only institute focusing exclusively on African American research. The Midwest African American Genealogy Institute is a place where attendees learn, research, and gain the tools needed to become a stellar genealogist and family history researcher. The dates are July 9th through the 11th at the Allen County Public Library Genealogy Center in Fort Wayne, Indiana. For further information, please check out the website, the Maggie website, www.maggie, M-A-A-G-I-I-N-S-T-I-T-U-T-E dot org. Also, I am happy to announce that my new book, Tracing Their Steps, a memoir is hot off the press. This book is about a journey I took to verify the oral history shared by my grandmother that her grandfather, Peter Clark, owned a lot of land in Maripas, Louisiana. Through painstaking research, through an array of obstacles, I discovered that this land was acquired under the Homestead Act of 1862. This story will take you on a journey to learn how the power of oral history can serve as a guide to capturing a beautiful family history. The book is available on Amazon.com, and signed copies are available through my website, Jeannie B. Roots. Well, you have been listening to Pamela Bailey tell us about the Big Family Search Project. So, Pamela... We have some questions coming out of the chat room. Okay. With all of the data and the new connections, what is your plan? What will you do or possibly what has already been done with that new information? Well, the the thing that I am working on um, at the moment is actually creating a documentary project. 
because I want there to be some transparency about my um, search for my family because I want other people to be able to duplicate what I'm doing. So I'm in the process of finding funding um, so that I can actually go and meet my family all across the country. So right now, when you say meet your family all across the country, how are you communicating with your family members right now? Um, Again, um, through a myriad of ways, but like what I've spoken about um, recently through Facebook and a lot of them um, who I have found very close relationships uh, with, um, we are developing our own relationships and we talk quite a bit now. So that family that I am just, you know, newly discovering has actually become family and they have actually become friends. We have yet to meet face-to-face, though. Yeah, we have Mm -hmm. yet to meet face-to-face, and we're excited about that. Well, you know, Pamela, I can really relate to what you're saying because I have just several DNA cousins across the United States, some of which we have not figured out our connection yet, but we Mm -hmm. still feel like family. And, I mean, that's kind of one of the beginning parts of what happens when you have a DNA connection, you start sharing and talking, and eventually I think you will figure it out. But let's talk for a minute, Pamela, about some myths that have, you know, maybe have been disproven by researchers in the last few decades about African-American research. Why don't you share with us some of the myths that you are finding that are definitely not true now? Oh, sure. Um, the research in the last decade has been incredibly important um, to, you know, African-American people and finding families, but also just to the larger population to sort of understanding uh, what slavery really was about. Um, in the past for, hundred, you know, the last hundred years, you know, we looked at the economics of slavery and the institution, but not many people actually looked at the people who suffered as a result of slavery. And so now you have have incredible researchers like Kenneth Stamp, um, Damian um, Allen Pargas, and um, a lot of really good uh, researchers out there who are talking about the people. And so we know a lot about uh, what slavery was actually like for those people because of things like the um, Federal Writers Project that have slave narratives. So the people who had formerly been enslaved were able, able to tell their own stories. And so what happens very often, they are able to refute what has been written about slavery because those, um, you know, those writings, that information and research didn't actually take into consideration the people who were enslaved. So just a few things um, that were myths, and they were really surprising. These are really big things. Um, and you think, how can people actually believe this? But this has been, and still in a lot of ways, um, they, it's still the prevailing belief about what slavery was like. So there were some myths that were perpetuated by slaveholders, even someone like Thomas Jefferson, who said that um, people of color, black people who were enslaved, that they lacked the capacity to feel sorrow and pain when they separated their fam- from their families or their communities soon forgot about them. And if, we know this is not true. And there are countless stories of people who held on to mementos of loved ones 
um, who had been sold away for decades earlier. Or if, you know, a traveler came through, you may have had a mother and child that had been separated for, you know, 30, 40 years, but that mother inquired about her child. So that myth that we lack the capacity to love and care about our families just was not true. Um, There was another myth that uh, was created that said that basically men were the cruelest slaveholders. But there's a new book that actually just came out uh, in the month of February by an author by the name of Stephanie E. Jones-Rogers. The book's entitled, They Were Her Property, White Women as Slaveholders in in the American South. And what that book talks about is that nearly 40% of Southern slaveholders were women. And what we know is that some of those women could be exceptionally cruel. There's a story about a woman um, from Mississippi. Her name was Martha Gibbs, and it's recorded in that book as well. But Martha owned quite a few slaves um, in Mississippi, and so she did what several slaveholders did, which was called refugeeing. So when they knew that the war was going to be coming their way, what they would do is forcibly migrate their slaves to other states. And so she actually forcibly migrated her uh, slaves from um, Mississippi to Texas, um, to what's now Marshall, Texas, in Harrison County. And what's significant about her story is that she was very determined that um, she was going to see her crop come in. So she actually bought her slaves uh, to Texas at gunpoint, and she forced them to work for a full year after emancipation. So after those slaves bought in that last, I mean, I'm sorry, that first crop, then she released them. So when I heard this story, you know, I was just really shocked and amazed. And, of course, I immediately went to go look at my DNA matches, and I have nearly 15 people who are connected through DNA in Marshall, Harrison County, Texas. Um, And then one last myth is that, um, you know, there are stories that say, and and I often run into this, um, you know, uh, with some of my friends whose, you know, families were um, slaveholders. And, you know, I'm very, I make it very clear to them that you are not responsible, you know, for what, you know, your family did in the past. But it is important, um, out of respect for those people who were enslaved, that we, you know, tell true stories. You know, we can't um, continue to talk about the myths uh, as though they were reality because um, you sort of diminish, again, the people who were enslaved. So one of those stories is, you know, people always say that, you know, their family treated, you know, their slaves like family. Um, In fact, we know that by the mid-1800s, there were half million biracial children by racial people, excuse me, in this country, and they were mostly of European and African descent. But those people um, who, many of them, you know, were children of slaveholders, but they were still enslaved and also, you know, sold um, in slavery, uh, during slavery. So they really were not treated very differently. Um, And also, um, you know, a slaveholder's financial well-being always took precedence. Um, I wouldn't say always, in most cases, took precedence over, you know, keeping a family together. Now, sometimes there were benevolent slaveholders, and I was interested um, in finding out if that was the case in my family. And there actually is an example. 
So um, there was a gentleman um, by the name of Joseph Dulles. And Joseph Dulles, excuse me, he was from, um, he was from Philadelphia. And um, what happened is he had actually inherited a plantation from an aunt who passed away in South Carolina. And he did not want the responsibility of those particular enslaved people, so he had made a deal with several slaveholders to sell those slaves. And what happened is um, one of the families um, who held uh, my family in slavery, um, they were um, former governors. One was uh, former uh, the governor, Richard Irving Manning, uh, who had lots of slaves, and then his sons, uh, Richard Irving Manning II and John Lawrence Manning, and these folks were in Clarendon County, South Carolina, and in Sumter, South Carolina. Uh, so anyway, there was a deal made between uh, John H. Dulles and John Lawrence Manning. Uh, he was going to sell him a significant portion of those enslaved people. But he knew that John Lawrence Manning had slave, uh, had other places, other plantations um, in South Carolina, and he also had some interest in Louisiana. And uh, Dulles, you know, sort of sent word to the intermediary who was helping with this sale, word to Manning that he had absolutely changed his mind, that he would not um, sell to Manning because he felt surely that Manning would just send these people to various plantations. And he said that it was because of his, you know, religious beliefs that he would not have these uh, enslaved people separated. Now, again, um, that was a very benevolent act, but it was also um, intermittent because he did sell many of the slaves from the plantation. And what a lot of slaveholders did not consider was that for, um, for you know, our families, uh, much like their families, our families are not just mother, uh, father, and child, but grandparents and aunties and uncles. You know, all of those people are vital to a family unit. So even when there were attempts to keep a mother and child or a father and child together, um, very often they could be separated from the rest of the family that offered love and support. You're so right. You're right. So we are at a point where there's a question that has come in, and they would like you to, you know, Tell us more about what you learned from the history from your mother and what songs did she sing to you. You mentioned that <laughs> <Okay>. earlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, again, like I said, my mother was a, um, a fantastic singer, and um, she basically taught us the songs that she knew, which happened to be um, songs from the slave holding, uh, from the from the slave legacy, and um, those are songs that still persist in our, um, you know, in our lives today. And people just don't necessarily realize that they come from that particular ancestry. So just a couple of things, um, you know, I'll share with you, and um, I'll sing a little bit if you don't mind. Oh, please. Um, so um, many people know that song, Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you moan. Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you moan. Pharaoh's army already got drowned. Mary, don't you weep. And then um, songs like Steal Away, 
Steal away, steal away to Jesus. Steal away, steal away home. You know I ain't got long to stay here. And so now I see these songs um, that um, are, are pretty, like I said, they're everywhere in our society. I was laughing, uh, well, actually sharing the thought um, with a friend today. Um, I watched um, a commercial, and it was for like a window cleaner. And the music in the commercial is This Little Light of Mine. And This Little Light of Mine um, is a song um, that was created uh, in Mount St. Helena, South Carolina. Um, by slaves, and it is a commercial. Um, and so, again, this is really important, um, an important part of our history that has sort and again, it's wonderful when other people have an appreciation for your history. And, you know, this history, these songs are for everyone. But what makes the difference is when there is an appreciation for the people and the experiences that the songs come from. Um, one of the things that um, I do when I'm talking with folks or, you know, giving lectures is I bring up the song Kumbaya. And I think that there is, prob- there is probably no one left on the planet who hadn't heard or sang Kumbaya. And so what has happened is, um, you know, millions of children sat at campfires singing Kumbaya. And, you know, that's a song that they've heard on the radio and they've taught their children Kumbaya. And so what has happened is that the meanings of the songs have been distorted. And that's what's really sad. I heard, I read, I've read um, the autobiography of Frederick Douglass uh, several times. But um, in the most recent rereading um, of his autobiography, he mentions um, that he has never heard on the plantation those spirituals sang at a happy time. So when a family was broken up, and because, again, these things would happen very quickly. Um, for instance, um, it was said that sometimes when children were playing in a yard, um, you know, enslaved children, if they saw a stranger on the property looking over a fence, you know, they would run to mothers and fathers because they knew that somebody may be taken away in an instant. Um, and so it was during those times when a family, um, you know, was, was being torn apart where the people who were left there were so distressed that they would sing the Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya, Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya. And there's a verse in that song that says, Somebody need you, Lord, Kumbaya. So we're asking God, Lord, we need you to intercede because as human beings, we can't handle this burden. We can't handle this pain. Um, and there were times um, even when, you know, my great-uncle Charlie uh, Grant, uh, he was my grandfather's, uh, my, my great-grandmother's brother. Um, he actually has a testimony in the Federal Writers Project. And what he talks about, um, even though he spent his first five years enslaved, his memory, when he was in his 80s, um, it was very clear about seeing his mother, Prissy or Priscilla Johnson, being beaten. And he talks about her being tied um, to, um, you know, this wooden, um, this wood, wooden, 
uh, stake that had been uh, placed in the yard, and how you know she had you know had was disrobed, um, and how she was beaten in the presence of the other people there. And so I have to tell you, I come from this part of my family. Um, you know, these women are very sort of you know prissy women. Um, uh, interestingly, um, where you know you have women who are always well-dressed. I mean, my mother and her sisters and my grandmother and her sisters, so this has sort of been their legacy. They were very modest women. And so um, even growing up, my mother was very modest and um, very careful, you know, about how she dressed, even in the home. So I can't even imagine what that must have been like for that mother to know that her children were watching and, you know, everyone in that community was watching. And so when the other women would would take her, you know, once she was untied from having received this punishment and they would try to address and help heal the wounds, that's when a song like Kumbaya would be sang. It was never meant um, to be, you know, sang around a campfire. So, again, it's just really important as these songs, you know, are important to all of our history. And let's be real, African-American history is just American history. Um, and um, But it's important that if we're going to sing the songs um, about the suffering of the people, then we have to understand the context of those songs and to represent them uh, well and sing them at the appropriate occasions. And, you know, as you are saying this, I mean, let's just talk about family genealogy. I mean, do you feel this spiritual component or do you want to say, yes, there is a spiritual component to family genealogy? Absolutely. I think even with people um, who choose to do this, because this is a lot of work. I mean, let's be real. Uh, You do this so you know um, I can easily, you know, work, you know, nine, ten hours um, on my job and then go home and I find, you know, something significant. I just found um, a piece of information about my grandfather that places him on a um, a warship um, at the same time that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was on that ship. And um, he's not recorded in history, but the records say that he was there. But when I find something, it's so easy to go down, you know, that rabbit hole. Um, and you can spend hours upon hours researching this information because it's important to me that my information that I fully intend to share with all of my family, it has to be accurate. And so, um, it, you know, I feel like it's not something that I chose to do. And many genealogists will tell you we were chosen. And that is a spiritual thing because a lot of people do want the information, but they are not necessarily interested in actually going out and finding the information. And that's okay Um, because like anything that you're called to do, that's what you're responsible for, right? So, And the other thing is I feel like people, these ancestors are found when they are ready to be found. So I had been searching for people for years, and then suddenly 
you know, bits and pieces of information will just finally come together. Like just something that I've been looking for for five years, one day I just start looking and there is, you know, almost their complete history, you know, laid out in just a short amount of time. So I do believe um, that at the appropriate time, you know, they show up, um, you know, in the research. So, um, and and also, um, it just informs everything about my life at this point. So I have an appreciation now, a greater appreciation for having had the ability to raise my own children. Um, I'm about to celebrate next year, 30 years with my husband. Um, Just the fact that, uh, you know, I have been with the same person that I have loved for 30 years, and, you know, really only our decision or death can part us. That wasn't the case for my family, um, you know, prior to being emancipated. So, you know, you could be, you know, married to someone for 30 years and you could still be sold apart. But on average, you're talking about marriages on plantations that were only about eight years, uh, you know, know, eight years together. And people really had love relationships. So that had to be a very difficult thing. So it just makes me appreciate my own life. How blessed I am to be had to have been born in this time, but again, it just gives me so much respect for my ancestors and their resilience and their tenacity to um and their will to survive so that I could even be here and and the beauty you know first of all, congratulations you'll be celebrating Thank you. 30, thirty years with your uh, loved one. And uh, but you have been given that capacity to to find the story and to share the story, so that your children and even your newfound cousins, you can all come together to share the stories. And you know that statement you made about ancestors are found when they are ready to be found. Mm-hmm. I clearly I can relate to that that comment that you just made because. It it just feels like that sometimes when you're on this endless journey and then all of a sudden there it is. The information is right there looking at you. Yes. And when you, you mentioned that, well, anything that you want to present to people, you want it to be accurate. Absolutely. And you, you want to have the documentation to support it. And so, I mean, I think that is the journey that we're we're all on. And mm-hmm. it is it is an amazing journey. It, I just can't imagine people not being interested, but clearly there are some that don't want to know the story or don't mm-hmm. share the story or will say that they've never heard the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes I even wonder about that. What's your thought about that? People who are saying, well, nobody ever told me. Well, um, well, uh, my thought about it is that, you know, it's my job to ask. Um, well, here's the thing. You know, when when I'm finding family, we are so much alike. Um, there's so much information to be gained by knowing who you are and to whom you are connected. So I'm finding that I look like my family. Um, we have a lot of the same interests. Um, one part of my family, my mother's uh, family, particularly the Gerald family um, and the um, James family, they are incredibly talented musically. 
and I can go back for generations. It's it's funny because my um my grandmother and my uh, I'm sorry my great grandmother, um who was Laney Jane Gerald and my great grandfather uh, Daniel uh, Dewitt, um who were born in um, the early um, 1860s. Well, actually, right around 1860, um, she had a piano. And you know, right out of slavery. Uh, she had a piano, and, you know, she taught my grandmother how to play this piano. And my grandmother was incredibly talented, taught her children how to play the piano. And so uh, I grew up um, with a family that if you had a barbecue, you had a concert. But it is <laughs> as as much of a genetic trait as the color of your eyes. Or And there are scientists who say that for extraordinarily talented, musically talented or artistically talented people, that 50% of that talent is genetics. So it, it's been important for me to ask those questions um, because I want to know why I am the way that I am. Um, I found um, recently... Um, a relative in Florida, South Carolina, I'm sorry, Florida, um, in Florida, uh, in the state of Florida, and he was an ancestor by the name of Scipio Lawrence. There is a Scipio Rames who is family in Clarendon County. Well, what I can tell you about both of these men who share this name, that they both were very strong patriarchs in their family, even though Scipio Rames had been enslaved, he was one of the first people who registered to vote during Reconstruction. And so when I talked to this newfound family in Florida who were not even aware of the Scipio Rames, these two men had the very same characteristics. So not only is it important and interesting, it's a lot of fun to learn about who you are and about those things that live in you because of other people. Oh, it's it's just so exciting. Now, I have just a couple more questions, and then we're going to wrap up the show tonight. But, you know, some people are are really fearful of getting their DNA tested for many reasons. So what's your take on that? Since you have mentioned connecting with people and not quite knowing how you are relating, although you feel like you're family, what's your take on those that are fearful of taking a DNA test? Well, um, it's, it's funny. I just wrote a blog about this on my um, on my website, um, which is bigfamilysearch.com, because as I talk to people, I find that it is a very real fear. Um, there are people that are fearful for many reasons. Um, some um, are fearful because um, they may have heard, you know, things um, within their families. Um, and sometimes those things bear out their truths. For instance, um, they may have heard um, that they are, you know, don't all have the same, you know, parents. Um, and so sometimes you find people who take DNA testing. Um, I found a family member who, you know, has, you know, she's much older, found out that, you know, her father for, you know, all of her life was not necessarily, you know, um, the man that she thought was her father. And so here's the thing. What, what makes a difference is how you receive this information. What I have decided is that families do the best they can, and we have to be willing to accept 
the facts for what they are. DNA tests, uh, they're just fact. Understand, it's just based on truth. And so how we interpret or how we accept that truth is what is or is not important. I have people who have contacted me who have no idea that they have African ancestry. So when they take that DNA, they find out that even though they may identify as Irish or Jewish or Italian or Latino, they find out that we have the same, you know, African ancestry. Some of them are incredibly excited about that. Then there are some who may not be as enthusiastic about it, and they may have heard these stories, and then if you take the DNA test, it may bear out the truth. So, um, you know, I just say in a situation like that, it really is to each his own. Um, you know, people may not be comfortable with it, and they may never want to know, and that's okay. But what they do have to be prepared for, that people who are very close to them may want to have that information, and that every single person has the right to know um, the very essence of who they are through DNA. Okay. And so let's take one more question. How do you use social media to inform uh, people of your family search project? Um, I encourage people, as many people as I can, to go on to. Uh, I have a Facebook page that's dedicated to it. I have the, um, you know, the blog and the website. And what typically happens, which is so amazing, is that when I start to share family stories and I start to share ancestral names and ancestral places, I tend to connect with people, and those people will connect me to their families who are also interested in knowing about the family and the ancestors that we have in common. Um, and so, again, social media is a huge part of it for me in making reconnections. And so also, um, again, family members who may not be doing the research can also, you know, come onto my uh, family um page um, on um, Facebook, and that, that's um, Pamela's Big Family Search is how uh, my Facebook page is for this, um, as well as, you know, again, my um, my website, so they can learn. They, and sometimes they never say anything, but then sometimes I have family members that say to these newfound family members, hi, family, how are you doing? It's nice to meet you. Welcome to the family. So it's been a very um, important and encouraging experience, um, you know, you using social media that way. And how many members do you have on your uh, Pamela's Big Family Search Facebook page? Um, Well, uh, people contact me now on both that Facebook page and and my personal one because they're very connected. So about um, about 900 on one and about maybe 200 or 300 on the other. And are all of these people uh, known family members or family members that have tested through DNA? Um, they are a combination of those things. So some of them are known family members, but a lot of them are newfound family members. And like I said, so when, what happens if I connect with someone, let's say, in California, and he knows about family, um, you know, in Colorado or family in New York, um, very often, you know, people will even say to me once we connect via the telephone or email, um, you should call this person or you should call that person because they have some of the family history. And so 
that's how we have continued to grow and grow uh, in terms of knowing each other as a family again. Okay, well, this is so exciting, and I want to wish you a lot of success with connecting with as many family members as you can. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everyone created these massive connections and shared these stories? It it would definitely make a difference in everyone's life. So do you have any final thoughts before we end the show tonight? Um, Yes. um, What I would say in a nutshell, and and I think I've said some of this, is that, you know, this is hard work. It really is hard work. It's very time-intensive work. But it is so necessary. And it's probably one of the more important things that I may accomplish in my lifetime if I am able, you know, to connect my family. So I I just want um, people to know that um, they should be willing to share as much information as they can um, with their family. You know, we don't want to leave this planet and leave our family disconnected and disjointed and not knowing the fullness of who they are. So I just encourage people, you know, when you know um, information about your family that's important and helpful to other people, I think that it's important to share that information. Um, I think it's important that once you find, you know, members of your family participating in history and that that isn't um, recorded anywhere, you want to make sure that you send that information, you know, to those groups of people that can record that information and make sure that your family shows up in history. Um, But most importantly, I just want to say to my family that those who I have always known, um, those who I have, you know, recently discovered, and those that I may discover in the future, that I love them all and I am excited about um, getting my family together and um, giving back their history. Wow. Well, Pamela, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me tonight to just talk about family and family search and reconnecting. You know, forced migration doesn't have to be there forever. It's time for us to come back together and to bust down those myths and say, hello, family, I'm here for you and you're here for me and we're here to love each other. And so everyone... This has been one of those shows that all of you can go out and say, I want to connect with my family. I want to do that big family search. So please remember, everyone, your ancestors left footprints, and you should follow those clues. You know, Pamela talked about her father and how her father shared family history, and her mother shared history through songs. And so you want to find a way to gather that information about your family through oral history, family records, and then find the documents, research at the National Archives and beyond. So you can continue this discussion on the Research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. And also remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Soul Smith. Thank you so much for joining Ancestors 
Footprints Blog Talk Radio. And also check out the services at my website, BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. Well, I look forward to all of you joining me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Pamela. Good night. Thank you for having me. You're welcome.